0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. As We get the privilege of celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to look at several passages today, and just uh, up front, you don't need to be turning to every single one. I'm going to be looking at them and reading them. You're free to do that, but just to know that we're going to be looking at several passages today and the reason for that is because I want you to leave today absolutely certain that the Lord Jesus has in fact risen from the dead. Christianity is not a faith of uncertainties. It's not a faith of probabilities. Faith is not something you hope might be true. Biblically true faith is believing in something you know is true. You know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and therefore you've placed your faith in him and so our faith is to be certain And so I want us to actually go through several biblical texts, particularly in the Old Testament that prepare us for the resurrection of the Messiah and help us to see that this resurrection is not something that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that Jesus' apostles or New Testament writers came up with, but in fact they were building on Old Testament expectations. And so we will begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that'll be our jumping off point. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, In accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we can see here that Paul is building on the Old Testament. He writes that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. This is not yet a reference to. The New Testament, which had not been fully completed yet or uh, acknowledged yet. In fact, we'd still have several more years until John would write his final contribution to the, the, the New Testament scripture. So Paul here is referencing the Old Testament scripture. Christ died according to those Old Testament scriptures. It was foretold in multiple different ways and in multiple different times in the Old Testament. But he also was raised according to those same scriptures, and he's raised according to those same scriptures on the third day, as we'll see. I want us to look to the Old Testament to see where it says that Jesus was to die and to rise again, and I want us to see where it says that he was to rise on the third day. The Old Testament prepares us for the resurrection of the Messiah in multiple different ways. We're going to look at three today. The first way is by giving direct verbal prophecy that this is in fact going to happen. That the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead. And it does that directly and it does it through uh, verbal prophecies. And we'll look at Psalm 16 and we'll look at Isaiah 53. But the Old Testament also prepares us for the resurrection of the Messiah by giving us multiple different patterns or examples of patterns in the Old Testament of being raised from death to life, in the life of God's people. And then, thirdly, we're going to look at another way that the Old Testament prepares us for the resurrection of the Messiah, and that's through typological prophecy. What is typological prophecy? This is simply typological prophecy where a person or event or institution in the Old Testament, though real and historical, actually points to a greater fulfillment in Christ. That's typo- typological prophecy, and we will look at all three of those today. But why why do all this work on a Easter Sunday? Well, we want to do this because I want you to see clearly that the resurrection of Jesus was an, his, an historical, real time event that was anticipated and prophesied in the Old Testament in countless ways. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not some, not some sort of fantastical myth made up by the New Testament writers or by the disciples. This is coming out of a myriad of texts in the Old Testament as God is preparing His people over and over in countless different ways to know with certainty that their Messiah would not only die, but that He would be raised again. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ after His crucifixion and death on the cross was a historical event that was foretold centuries before it happened. So let's first begin with turning to a text that is referenced in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament text. It's Psalm 16. And you can, if you're following with me, you can go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is where we're going to get a helpful New Testament interpretation of this psalm from Peter in his first sermon. Peter's preaching and he's saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did this. You did it from your own evil desires. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Well, why would you say that, Peter? What gives you the the grounds to say that? He he tells us, for David says concerning him, now he's quoting Psalm 16. This is an Old Testament text written by David, Israel's king. And this is what David says. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? Why, David, are you so hopeful in God? He tells you, verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the, the, the abode of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You make, known, uh, you make me full of gladness with your presence. Well, interestingly, Peter points out, and he says in, in verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say uh, to you with confidence that our patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. If you want to, we could walk over just a a few meters and I'd show you where David was in fact buried. We could dig up his bones and I could prove it to you. So then he draws your attention back to the text and says, how could he actually say such things? Because in fact, he is dead. And now knowing David is dead, you now go back to Psalm 16 to read it according to how he is speaking about the Messiah. Peter even tells us that David is a prophet speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah. God had granted David direct spiritual insight into what would happen in the life of this Messiah. Quote, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter is now interpreting psalm 16 for us and telling us this is how david could speak like this how could david talk about the resurrection or the the eternal life you might say of this holy one well he tells us it's because previously david had been given a promise by god that his kingdom would be forever that david's throne would last forever 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from here. This is the promise that God made to David. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, so anticipating that David would in fact die, he knows he's going to die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So then when David penned Psalm 16, he knows this. He knows that his throne is going to last forever. He knows that his offspring, there's coming an offspring someday. There's coming someone from his own body, a descendant. We know that is Jesus the Christ. But David knows that there's coming a descendant who will someday not die. Why? Because his throne must last forever. So David knows that in order for this promise to happen, for or in order for this promise to be secured, his descendant must never die. And that's what Peter says here. That's why David writes of this Holy One who will never see corruption. The Messiah's resurrection is prophesied here because... David knows his descendant, in order for his kingdom to last forever, his descendant must never die, must never ultimately die. So he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So that's Psalm 16, that's Old Testament. David is prophesying according to the promise he received from God about his descendants. His final descendant, the Messiah, could never die because God had promised David that his throne would last forever. Let's turn now over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a text that we often turn to on Good Friday, and rightly so. Isaiah 53 is all about the death of the Messiah, the death of the servant of the Lord. And even more than that, it's about the substitutionary atonement of this servant. That this servant would stand in the place of sinners, bearing the punishment that they in fact deserve in their place, so that they would not have to bear that punishment. And Psalm 53 begins telling us about this servant. He is not going to be someone that we would readily recognize. He had no form or majesty. He wasn't going to be a celebrity. He wouldn't be someone that you'd be like, oh, yeah, there's the Messiah. Look at that guy. He's big and he's strong and he's attractive and people are flocking around him and, and exalting him. He'd just be some normal person. He had no beauty that we would desire him, at least no external beauty. But then the, the uh, prophet Isaiah goes along and he says that he's going to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Here now he is beginning to explain to us how this Messiah, this servant, is going to stand in the place of sinners. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God's people deserve to bear their own griefs and their to be smitten by God, but the Messiah is smitten for us. We deserve to be pierced for our transgressions, but He is pierced for us. We deserve to be crushed for our iniquities, but He is crushed for us. Our iniquity should be placed upon us, but God places it upon Him. And by His wounds we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. And we all recognize this. A lot of us know this passage, right? Because we're so familiar with it this time of year. And maybe it's a favorite passage of ours as we turn to the Old Testament just reflect upon what Christ has actually done on our behalf. But the story doesn't stop here in the death of this servant. Death is clear. It's clear that he is, in fact, uh, that he dies. It says in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, which is a direct prophecy of how Jesus is going to be treated and his uh, death and how he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So this substitution that this Messiah, this servant, is going to make on the behalf of his people, it's going to complete in death. It's going to be finalized in death. He actually dies. However, don't stop there, verse 10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Things are going to happen that require this servant to be raised up from death. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is after he makes an offering for guilt. After he makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall Prolong his days, and the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Notice in verse, uh, the following verses, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. He will see the fruits of his labors. Now how can that happen unless this person who has died to uh, substitute for his people is then raised to now see all the things that Isaiah is talking about? He shall see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will see and be satisfied. He will do things after he has been raised. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his death and was numbered with the transgressors. So in verse 12, he's intertwining the reality of the death of this servant with the, the, also the same reality that he will rise up so that he can receive these things from God. Speaking in verse 12, the, the portion and the spoil that he will divide with the strong. Even though he will die and he will bear the punishment for others, he will see and be satisfied. He gets to see the fruit of his labors as we saw. This requires resurrection from the death that he has already endured. Resurrection is already built in to Isaiah 53, a text that we usually turn to to just focus on the death of Christ. But as you continue to read, you see that things are happening that require the Messiah to be raised from the dead. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall account the many to be righteous. He will enjoy a portion with the many, divide the spoil with the strong. These are all future events because they happen after the death of the servant. So that we see in... Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53, that the death and the resurrection of the Messiah is in fact prophesied in the Old Testament. So that's one way we see it. And there's other texts that we could turn to, but that's one way we see it. We see that the, the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Christ, is prophesied with direct verbal prophecies in the Old Testament. But it's also we're also prepared for the resurrection of the Messiah through patterns that God establishes in the Old Testament. Multiple people in the Old Testament God uses to establish a pattern of death to life, humiliation to exaltation. I want to look at two today. The first one is Joseph and the second one will be David. Let's start with Joseph. We will look. We can turn over now to Genesis 37. Of course, if you would like to follow along, you are free to follow along. We'll be just moving quickly through this. Story, but you many of you know the story if you don't i 'll try to fill it in for you. Joseph was one of Jacob's many sons, but it, it turns out he wasn 't just one of his sons, he was actually his favorite. and he made it clear that he was his favorite by favoring him in, in certain ways, the text says, but also by giving him a multicolored coat which would have been a unique gift, maybe an extravagant gift. It could have been very well that this coat was expensive, hard to put together with all of its various colors and the expense of the dyes and so on. So this gift demonstrates to all of Joseph's brothers that Joseph is, in fact, the favorite. And Jacob doesn't really give consideration of what he's doing. He just favors this one son and gives him the coat. And, And it doesn't go well with the rest of the brothers, as you could imagine. As you can imagine, maybe you've grown up with siblings and you and understand if you could clearly see that the dad favors just one uh, among the rest of you, there's going to be trouble. In fact, there's so much trouble that verse 37, 4 in Genesis says that the other brothers could not speak peaceably with him. There's there no peace in the home because everybody hated Joseph. Why? Because the father favored him far more than any of the others. But to make matters worse, to just imagine this, you're, you're the You're the son who's doted on more than everybody else. You've got a sweet new coat. You're wearing it around. It's multicolored so everybody can see it as you're wearing it around. You can spot Joseph coming from a mile away. Not only that, but you're going to now have some dreams. And the dreams are going to indicate that not only your brothers, but also your mom and your dad are going to someday bow down to you. That's just not going to go well in the family, right? Right? If the brothers are already upset with you, then the the parents are going to be upset with you. In fact, this second dream that Joseph has eventually draws the rebuke of his father saying you can't you can't talk like that. you can't do this, are we going to bow down to you really?" But actually, the text says that Jacob stored that away and kept it kept it tucked away. He continued to think about it well, uh, Joseph's brothers, their jealousy overtook them, and they eventually hatched a plan to. Uh, take care of Joseph to kill him, actually. And uh, one of Joseph's brothers, his older brother, one of his older brothers, Reuben, heard about it and said, let's not take his life. Let's figure out something else. Let's throw him into a pit in the wilderness. And Reuben said this because he was going to go back and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So the brothers stripped Joseph of his coat and threw him into a pit. Well, while Reuben is gone, the text tells us, Reuben leaves for whatever reason, and while he's gone, a group of traders come along, and the other brothers get the idea of we're just going to sell him to the traders and just be done with this Joseph character. So that's exactly what happens. These Midianite traders—they're also called Ishmaelites. That's the Ishmaelites are just the, the larger group. Midianites are the specific people group. These Midianite traders take Joseph and they they go on to. Egypt, And when Reuben returns and he sees uh, Joseph no longer in the pit, he was in great grief, as you can imagine. If your plan is to rescue Joseph and now he is gone, you wonder what's happened. And now you're just consumed with grief. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell your dad? Well, of course, instead of fessing up, what do they do? They just go deeper into the deception. All the brothers, including Reuben, now take Joseph's robe of many colors and they uh, kill an animal, and they put the blood of this animal on the robe so that it appears that Joseph has been killed. In fact, it's definitive proof that he's been killed, because look, here's his coat, Joseph's not in it, and there's blood all over it. So what do you can conclude except that he has died? And this is a really important statement that Jacob makes in uh, chapter 37, verses 32 and following. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Listen to this. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. That's an important thing to keep in mind. He is without doubt. He's dead. And so as far as Jacob is concerned, his son is dead. And as far as the brothers are concerned, he might as well be because they don't know where he went. And if he was traded off somewhere, who knows what happened to him. Maybe he did truly get killed later on. So as far as the entire family concerned, Joseph is dead and gone. Without doubt, he has been torn to pieces. Does that sound anything like perhaps the disciples felt on Saturday? But that's not the end of the story, is it? Joseph, from his perceived death, is resurrected to glory. In Egypt, he is soon found to be successful in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was one of the leaders there. He come now, he's now been taken to serve in Potiphar's house, one of the leaders in Egypt. And it says in verse 39 and 2 and following: The Lord was with Joseph and became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master, and his master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed by in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight of In his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So despite the treachery of his brothers, despite him being cast into a pit, things are now going well. But then Joseph is accused, falsely accused, as it turns out, of immorality by Potiphar's wife. This leads Joseph to be placed in prison for two years, another kind of death, you might say. He is forgotten about by everyone. He is placed in a pit, as we'll learn uh, later. Same word for pit. That was used for the pit that he was thrown into by his brothers. But Pharaoh starts having dreams of his own. And uh, he finds out that there's someone in this this dungeon, this pit, this prison, that can, can interpret dreams. In fact, he has successfully interpreted a dream of someone in that prison. Pharaoh catches wind of this and says, Get me that man. So he brings Joseph out of the prison, and it says this. It says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. That's the same word pit as was used to refer to the pit that his brothers threw him into. And when he shaved himself, see, it's biblical. When he shaved himself and changed his clothes, (laughs) he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh recited the dream. And Joseph gave an accurate rep- rep- uh, interpretation. So here's Pharaoh. He's disturbed. He's concerned about this dream. He gives it to, explains it to Joseph. And Joseph now is going to give him an interpretation. And here's the interpretation. Egypt will have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. So this is what you need to do, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. You need to select a wise man to oversee the process of savings during the time of abundance so that you will have enough during the time of famine. And Pharaoh likes this idea so much that he appoints Joseph to be that wise man. And he puts him in second in command of the entire nation. And now listen to this text because now we are seeing a very stark example of being raised from death to life, humiliation to exaltation. This is what happened. See, I have set you. This is Pharaoh now talking to Joseph. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put a gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Bow the knee. To this little brother who was thrown into a pit, then thrown into a pit, totally humiliated, forgotten about by everyone, now raised as second in command of all of Egypt and being the people being told to bow the knee to this man. Joseph had gone from death to resurrection. He suffered before he came into glory. There was a cross to bear before he received the crown. He was brought down to the pit before he was raised to newness of life. He was humiliated before he was exalted. But the story doesn't stop there either. Once Joseph is exalted, he finally reveals himself to his father and to his brothers who believed that he had really died. The story closes like this. So they, Joseph's brothers, went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And and this is explaining Jacob now. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So though he did not initially believe it, he was brought to faith in the You could say the resurrection of his son. For as far as Jacob was concerned, Joseph was dead. He had empirical proof that his son was dead. So what do we see here? This is a pattern. This is a pattern that God has established in the Old Testament to prepare us for the resurrection of the Messiah. Before Joseph entered into his glory, he had to suffer. But after his humiliation, there was exaltation. See, this story is not just a story of how Israel gets to Egypt. It's an important part. They, they must get to Egypt so that God can deliver them out of Egypt and d- d- display his glory to the world by redeeming his people. But why all this detail about Joseph? He Could have shortened it up. Why? Because we're given a pattern of exaltation after humiliation. You can see the same pattern in the life of David. Consider David's life when he's running from Saul. David was the anointed true king of Israel. Saul was an impostor king. Saul had defied the Lord, turned away from the Lord, and, and God was grieved that he had even anointed him to be king in the first place. And he now has David anointed. He's the true king. God recognizes him as the true king. The prophet recognizes him as the true king. But he is going to be now sent into exile by this imposter king, Saul, a kind of death, you might say, but all of this occurs before David is eventually exalted to the throne of Israel. A cross before a crown, humiliation before exaltation, death before resurrection. But we also see the way David talks about this in his own psalms. Several psalms give us this picture of death to life in the life of David. Psalm 30, through 3 as an example. David writes this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from those from among those who go down to the pit. Notice how David talks here. He's rejoicing that God brought him up from Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. That's where you go when you die. That's just a reference to... The place that you go when you die. Sheol is death. That's that's what death is in in the Old Testament. Sheol. Now David never actually died in the pending of this psalm. We know that. But his experiences were like death. That's exactly why he uses this language of Sheol and being brought up from it. God's deliverance of David is to him like being brought up, being resurrected from Sheol. Psalm 40 verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, David writes. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, from the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my uh, steps secure. Again, notice that David is brought up from the pit of destruction. While he never endured a physical death in this instance, God's rescuing of him was like a resurrection. And here's just an interesting side note. This is, it's, it's a bit of a detail, but it's a very interesting detail. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And if you're not familiar with that, the original language of the the Old Testament was Hebrew. And about the third century BC, some Jewish scholars copied that Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. They They developed a Greek Old Testament. They just translated that Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And we know that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, you guys are familiar with the The book of Hebrews, it's about the the significance of the sacrificial system and the death of Christ, but in Hebrews, we know that that author used the Septuagint and relied upon the Septuagint when he was quoting from the Old Testament. So he's often using the Septuagint. In Hebrews 13.20, the author of Hebrews actually uses the same word in the Septuagint that is used here in Psalm 40 that is translated, drew me up in the English. When it says here that he drew me up from the pit of destruction. This is what uh, Hebrews thirteen twenty says. Now may the God of peace who, here's the word, brought up again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of eternal co- the eternal covenant, and so on. And so that's interesting because we can say that calling David's language here in Psalm 40, calling it resurrection language, it's not a stretch. It's not a stretch. The word is used specifically to refer to Christ's resurrection in Hebrews 13, 20. That's how the New Testament authors are thinking. This is what they're seeing in the Old Testament. Well, we know that David is eventually exalted to power over his enemies. Though David had to endure a season of exile and humiliation that oftentimes felt like death, he was eventually exalted, restored, and set upon a rock. And we see in these Psalms that David's suffering and that his suffering was like death, but after suffering there was deliverance, after humiliation there was exaltation, after death there was life. This is a pattern that God has worked into the very fabric of the Old Testament. So that when you come to the New Testament and you come to the life of the Messiah, you should be already anticipating both the death and the resurrection of the Messiah which is exactly why Jesus, after he is risen, and he meets his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they are not recognizing him, what's his response? His response is, this is Luke 24, 25 through 27, his response is this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, all of it, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus called his disciples foolish and slow of heart precisely because they did not pick up on these prophecies and these patterns that are all throughout the Old Testament. They all were leading you to conclude that the Christ must suffer, he must die, and he must rise again. Hence the rebuke that Jesus gives his disciples on the road to Emmaus. So that when Paul says that Jesus rose according to the scriptures, we can see that he wasn't making things up. He was building on the Old Testament and the reality that the Messiah must be raised from the dead. The truth that the Messiah's resurrection is being prophesied and prepared in multiple different ways in that Old Testament. What about the three days part though? He was raised again, according to the scriptures, but he was raised again after three days. What about the three days part? Is that in the Old Testament? Well, it is. And remember, the, the last type of way we are prepared for the resurrection of the Messiah is typological prophecy. We've seen verbal, direct verbal prophecy. We've seen the patterns, and now this is typological prophecy. And let's turn over now to Matthew chapter 12 and get help from Jesus on how to interpret the book of Jonah. How shall we interpret the book of Jonah? Remember what a a type is. Typological prophecy is when a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is established by God to find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Types in the Old Testament serve as a picture of a coming reality. Israel's sacrificial system is an excellent, an excellent example of a type of Christ. You come to the book of Hebrews, we already mentioned the book of Hebrews, and we learn there that the Old Testament sacrificial system, even the high priest himself who offered the sacrifices, that's all fulfilled in Jesus who is both the sacrifice and the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies on our behalf with his shed blood and throws open the doors for his people that we can now enter into God's presence freely. That's all Old Testament preparation in the sacrificial system. That's typological. Those are, that's a type that's now fulfilled in Christ. The event of the Passover we saw on a Friday that we talked about on Friday night was an event that, in the subsequent celebrations in Israel, that were pictures of the coming Savior who would cover his people with his own blood so that they would not perish. This is typological prophecy. What about Jonah. Well, let's look now at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and following. It says this Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Which is just ridiculous, first of all, because he had just gotten done giving them a lot of signs. So this is just a clear indication of their unbelief, which is why they received this rebuke. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is the sign of the prophet jo- Jonah, Jesus? I, we, we would like to know, and he, he lets us know. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is Jesus saying here? Well, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, this the, the story of Jonah, it's a true story, it's in the Old Testament, and it's the story of, uh, of a prophet who was commissioned by God to go preach to a neighboring town of Nineveh. And this was a pagan town, it was a very large town, in fact calling it a town that's not exactly right, it was a massive city, it took three days just to walk across the entire span of the city, it's a huge place, and Jonah's commissioned to go preach there. Well, Jonah doesn't want to share the mercy of God with other nations. He likes keeping it to Israel and to himself. And so he decides not to do that. He, in fact, goes and boards a ship that's headed in the opposite direction, namely to a place called Tarshish. Well, he doesn't get too far, as you could imagine. I mean, if God commissions you and you go the opposite direction, you're not going to get very far, and he doesn't get very far. A storm starts brewing, and Jonah knew that the storm was due to his own rebellion and sin and disobedience. So he eventually convinces the ship's crew to throw him overboard. He knew that if he was tossed out of the ship, that the storm would likely cease because he was the problem. And so they throw him over, and the storm does calm down, but then Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. This is what it says in chapter 1, verse 17 of Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As far as the crew was concerned, Jonah's dead. In fact, being drawn under the depth of the sea is also a picture used in the Old Testament to refer to death or a near death encounter. Here's what's what's key, though. Jonah refers to his own experience as being in Sheol or being dead. He says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 2 quote, out of the belly of Sheol I cried to you and you heard my voice. It's like death. Jonah also says that God brought him, brought up my life from the pit. Jonah 2 6. Have you ever heard that before? Jonah's experience under the water in the belly of the fish is meant to be a representation of death. And the fish, when he vomits Jonah onto dry land again, this is meant to be symbolic of resurrection. That's exactly how Jesus takes it. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah is a type of Christ. Jonah is thrown into the storm of God's wrath as a substitute for the men on the ship. The storm stops. Then he spends three days in a kind of death to then to a resurrection on the third day. Jesus is thrown into the storm of God's wrath as a substitute for his people. The storm of God's wrath stops upon Jesus at the cross. Then he spends three days in the ground, then to be resurrected on the third day. That's how Jesus is reading the book of Jonah. That's how we're to read the book of Jonah. You might ask, where's the resurrection of the Messiah in the Old Testament? It's everywhere. (laughs) It's, It's everywhere. Now, some scholars suggest that Jesus got things wrong, here because it says that Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights but Jesus himself rose again only after three days and two nights and I just I just I don't have a lot of patience with these kinds of objections because it's a little disingenuous first of all because if, if you believe that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead once you just perhaps give the man who has power over death benefit of the doubt when he's explaining these things and say maybe he does know what he's talking about maybe I'm confused Just maybe, because, you know, he's the one who rose himself from the dead. So I find it a little little disingenuous on that account. But secondly, as one commentator on Matthew points out, Jesus' reference to three days and three nights accords with the way days were counted in Jewish tradition at this time. Three days and three nights didn't, mean to, didn't need to mean any more than three days or the combination of any part of the three separate days. So Jesus is not mistaken here, nor does Jonah's prophecy contradict what actually happened if you're following the way that these days would have actually been counted at this time. The point that we want to make this morning is not only is the resurrection prophesied in pattern in the Old Testament the length of the three days is as well. Paul isn't making stuff up. He's rooting his statements about Jesus' death and resurrection squarely in the Old Testament scriptures. This is not some crazy myth. That's why this is so crucial. It's crucial because your faith in the resurrection is grounded in solid bedrock truth. You're meant to be certain about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, only being certain about Jesus' resurrection is what will change your life. It's what changed the disciples' life. How can you you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus day after day if you're not certain that he's been raised again and will raise you again? Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, expectations, patterns, allusions, types, and prophecies. As you read the Old Testament, you should be expecting the resurrection of the Messiah. And the reason the Old Testament is replete with promises, expectations, and so on, is because the Messiah's resurrection is absolutely necessary. There's no salvation without it. There's no forgiveness of sins without it. There's no hope of heaven without it. Listen to how Paul responds to the claim that there's no resurrection from the dead. And this is in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 18. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So let me just be clear to both believer and unbeliever here today. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christians are the most foolish, ignorant, ridiculous, deceived, and deceptive people on the face of this planet. You have to face it. You have to face that logical conclusion. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is a total sham and waste of time. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no eternal life. Pack it up, go home, go get as much pleasure in sin as you can before you're hit by a bus or before you die of natural causes. That's the conclusion. That's not me, that's Paul. That's the logical conclusion that you have to draw. See, people like to think that they got you when they, they hey, you're so foolish for, for believing in the resurrection. You're, I can't believe you believe in the resurrection. I can't believe you're living like this. And Paul would say, there's no gotcha. That's my point. It's not a gotcha at all. Without the resurrection, we are absolutely foolish for living the way that we do, for believing the way that we believe, for preaching the way that we preach. It is folly if Christ has not been raised from the dead. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we are wasting our time and we are spreading nonsense. But, but what? Next verse. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised. The New Testament declares this reality with multiple eyewitness accounts and a load of references and allusions to the Old Testament. The anticipation of the death and resurrection of the Messiah is the very structure of the Old Testament, and we are prepared for the resurrection of the Messiah through a massive set of verbal prophecies, patterns, and typological prophecies. This you can be sure This you can be certain. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Your faith is not in vain. Your faith is not a sham. Christianity is true. You can be certain of it. This means that his death on the cross is effective to wipe away all of your sin. Fully effective to wipe away all of your sin. He stands as the risen Savior whose work was accomplished completely on that Friday night when he said, it is finished. God was pleased and received that sacrifice and raised his son up from the dead. God is fully satisfied by Christ's death on the cross for sinners. Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient to pay all for all the sins of anyone who believes in him. Not to add anything, no work no sacrament, no good deed. It has been completed. It is finished. And now that he has risen from the dead, he is saving all those who call upon him in repentant faith. How can he do that? It's because he's alive. He's alive right now. And there's a lot of you out here who know that and know that personally. He's alive. He's changed your life. Our plea to you this morning is that if you are not one who has beheld the risen Savior by faith, is that you would behold Him today and repent from your sin and trust in Him alone for full, complete, irreversible forgiveness of sin. Full, complete, irreversible, can't-be-taken-away forgiveness of sin. Your biggest problem solved in the death of of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. And because Christ has been raised to life and never to die again, you will someday be raised to life, never to die again, if you trusted in Him. You will be brought into a true and genuine bodily resurrection to then live in a new heavens and a new earth, to worship, serve, and love God forever, and to dwell with His saints, who will be your greatest delight. Those who reject the risen Savior will someday be resurrected as well, but it won't be to a resurrection of life. It will be to a resurrection of judgment. Unbelievers will need a new resurrection body to be able to withstand the punishment that God will pour out upon them for all eternity for their rejection of Him and His Son. But God calls you today to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. The work is done. What's left but to turn from your sin and behold the living Savior? Forgiveness is secured for those who believe. Christ has died for sinners, and he invites all sinners, every sinner, to come to him for everlasting life and the forgiveness of their sins. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks and praise for your Word in the Old Testament, preparing us without doubt for the resurrection of the Messiah. Death to life, humiliation to exaltation, cross to crown, suffering to glory. It's all over the place. We thank you for giving us a faith that is true, that's real, that's secure, that's well-founded, that can be certain. God, I pray for anyone here today who is doubting or who is unbelieving that you would do a powerful work in their hearts by your spirit, through your word. And we ask all of this for your glory and for our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.